Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we talk to traffic and mobility experts, discuss innovation, and highlight business leaders within transport and city planning. Hello, my name is Emily Bobbis, and welcome back to another episode of the Bite Size podcast. Our topic for today's episode is all about inclusivity, social procurement, and how we can better design cities and our infrastructure to cater for people that live with disabilities. Now, when I say disabilities, I don't just mean what you may think of as your stereotypical long-standing disability, like a person in a wheelchair, for example. I'm also talking about short-term ones that maybe you or your loved ones may have experienced, such as needing to use crutches after an injury or trying to navigate a city with a cast on one arm. Our guest today does a fantastic job at breaking it all down and highlighting the importance of why we need to look at things from a more inclusive angle. So our guest is Sue Boyce, and she is the CEO of AbilityWorks. Now, AbilityWorks is a not-for-profit social enterprise that's been operating since 1963 down in Melbourne. It offers challenging opportunities for people living with a disability on an NDIS plan. As for Sue, I mean, she's incredible. She's had this really amazing non-linear career journey, including working in the not-for-profit sector, such as Beyond Blue, studying her own business and a lot of other experiences in mental health and the disability space. Until something like an injury that affects you personally, that forces you to alter the way you interact with our transport and our city infrastructure, we often don't think about how these things are designed. And whether they are designed from the get-go with inclusivity and accessibility in mind. Sue, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I was hoping you could walk through a little bit about your career journey and about Ability Works because when we first spoke, it's quite a, a fairly unconventional uh, pathway to get where you are now. Yes. It was. So I've generally taken jobs for the experience, the interest, um, and, you know, just something different to what I was doing before, as opposed to building a a career path. And I do remember at one point in my career thinking, I wonder if I've made a mistake, because I actually (laughs) don't know a lot about anything. I don't have a depth of, you know, knowledge in a particular sector. I don't know a lot of people within a sector. But in hindsight, I think it's worked because um, I've had, to, to, to arrive at where I have at AbilityWorks, there were two roles that I, I had that I think have been really helpful. And the first one was my experience of 20 years of self-employment where I had to get across you know, sales, marketing, IT, finance, HR, and um, really learn how to run a business. And I think, I I seem every day to be drawing on that experience again. And the second one was working in the not-for-profit sector at Beyond Blue for four years, where that really helped me to understand how an organisation is run when you put purpose before profit. Because in a social enterprise or a not-for-profit social enterprise like AbilityWorks, you need both. you need, and you need to um, balance the tension every day of you know, meeting a social outcome or having social impact as well as running a commercial enterprise. And those two need to be in balance and live in tension every day. So, so ultimately, you know, the, the sort of very varied experience I had 
um, of small organizations or building my own from a greenfields operation to a 20 million turnover of working in very large corporates of working in uh, community and public health and then finally the not-for-profit sector it all sort of has come together in, in a way <laughs> it always somehow manages to uh manifest i think at the end it's, it's kind of nice how these things work out yes Speaking of the balance, uh, when we were having our phone conversation prior to recording, you were talking about this idea of social procurement. I was hoping you'd be able to just kind of walk through a little bit about what that is or, or what it involves. Yes, yeah, so in 2018, the Victorian government developed what they call a social procurement framework and policies. And what that means is that any corporates um, wanting to, to win government tenders need to procure a certain amount for that tender socially. So that means they need to either directly employ um, people where they're creating a social impact or they might uh, purchase from a social enterprise or they might have some sort of environmental impact. And the government uh, has now started to put somewhere between a 10 to 30% weighting on their tenders wow. um, to ensure that uh, corporates procure socially. And they are also now um, getting government departments to, to do the same. That's super interesting. I, um, I'm also curious about, say if you aren't in Victoria or, or Queensland or any of these states that might have a specific social procurement policy, how could other large infrastructure um, or, or transport corporations get involved or, or engage with social enterprises in their supply chain? I know that uh, you guys, I think, was it was talking to Transurban. All organisations have to do is try and buy from social enterprises. Sometimes that can be hard because generally social enterprises are quite tiny. About mm. 70% of them are under a $1 million turnover. So... Mm. Uh, it can be hard for very large corporations to to do so, but they could do what someone like Transurban did. Mind you, Transurban do buy directly from us. We've been, AbilityWorks have been for the last 10 years processing Transurban's mail. So we run their mailroom services as, and in that mail are e-tag. So we also manage their uh, e-tag logistics. So as a consumer, if you had a problem with your e-tag, you would send it back to Transurban. It actually comes to AbilityWorks and then we uh, sort and process them and some of them are recycled. But Transurban, what Transurban has also done, and this is what large corporates could do, is influence their supply chains. So um, Transurban went out to their supply chains and asked them to procure socially. And that is how AbilityWorks got involved with the Oricon Group, who are engineering, global engineering design firm, and we've been able to do some amazing things with Oricon. So we've started up a what we've called a user-centered design or human-centered design business unit. Uh, Oricon have also um, given us some skilled volunteers, which have helped us to develop some products to sell to the rail sector, um, and they've done a number of other things with us. So there are um, really unique things that if, if, if an organisation is really interested and gets to understand the social enterprise and their strategy, they can, you know, you can do some really wonderful things like we have with Transurban and Oricon. 
It definitely sounds like there's a lot of interesting opportunities as well for just for a lot of different companies to get involved and become more socially engaged as well, which is which is quite nice. Mm. You kind of beat me to it a little bit when you talked uh, or you mentioned about user-centered design, Mm -hmm. uh, which is definitely becoming more of a hot topic when we are starting to, I think, particularly in transport and infrastructure, design more for users or with users in mind. Mm -hmm. I can imagine this would have a particular relevance to people with disabilities. So how uh, would focusing on users improve maybe, say, access issues that people with disabilities may have day to day? Okay, it would help enormously. So when, when we design infrastructure at the moment, what we tend to do is we design for the majority and we tend to forget um, people with disabilities, uh, people who are elderly, But the the other side of it is all of us can have a disability or a temporary disability or even a permanent Mm. disability at various points in our life. So, for example, if you are um, if you've got an infant and you're pushing a pram around or if you've broken a leg or an arm or you've got older and and you're not as uh, mobile as you used to be, if you design for everybody as opposed to just the majority, Uh, you tend to make a better product for everybody. So taking people with disability inputting into design can be helpful for everyone. An example of that is uh, we've got an employee here who talks about how um, when he's he's in a wheelchair and when he gets to the end of the footpath, when there's a gutter, uh, it would be a lot easier for him if there was just a downhill ramp as opposed to a gutter. But that's Mm. not just helpful for him. That would be helpful for people who are elderly, for someone who's pushing an infant in a pram, uh, for someone who's broken their leg, for example. It kind of reminds me um, a bit of a personal anecdote. Uh, Back in 2010, I broke both of my wrists simultaneously playing soccer, which takes a lot of skill. But uh, (laughs) yeah. And, and like I was lucky enough that obviously I had a support network around me to to figure those things out. But if it happened somewhere like now where I, I no longer live at home, just even trying to open doors was quite difficult, let alone trying to commute to and from high school on a bus. So I can definitely understand or sympathise with people who may have more severe disabilities or, or more longer lasting than me who luckily only had a cast for six to eight weeks. So it's, it's, it's really good, I think, to start having those conversations not just when maybe you have an injury that tweaks your brain to actually start thinking oh hang on there are different things to do but just just in general like you said if if you design you design for the people that maybe aren't normally considered it does actually make it better for the majority of people anyway Mm. and what is the point you made then about you know your independence it was fine then because you had a lot of people around you but a lot of people don't have a lot of people around them Mm. anymore a lot of people are living alone so not um, taking the user into account when you're designing has a massive impact on people's independence uh, you know their self-confidence their social isolation because they're too scared to uh, move around the city and it causes Mm -hmm. stress and anxiety, it affects their mental health, it can also affect their employment status because they just physically cannot get into a building or the building is not adequately supported. 
Do you think that there are disparities between rural and urban centres as well in regards to, say, the level of support a person living with disabilities can access to help them commute to the infrastructure they need to or, or get to where they need to go if there isn't that infrastructure in place? Absolutely. I think, I mean, if urban centres haven't got uh, supporting infrastructure, it's even less likely that rural areas are, though, although you might be compensated uh, in rural areas by having a support network who can mm. help you. True. But within our own city, you know, I have a, we have an employee uh, who catches a lot of public transport and, and um, uh, he says the only place that's really great is the Burke Street Mall where, for example, getting on a tram, uh, he doesn't have to, um, you know, it's on, a, on the same level as the footpath, whereas everywhere else um, there's a median strip which means he has to cross the road and he's, mm. it creates a lot of anxiety when he's crossing the road because he's blind and he's not sure if cars will stop or whether he's going to have an accident <laughs> and then they're stepping up or stepping you know, onto a tram. Some of the older tram stops in Melbourne, there's really not that much for even a person to stand as a tram goes past, let alone say if somebody had either crutches or, or a wheelchair. So I can imagine that would also be a little bit kind of anxiety-inducing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, we have so many examples, our employees. I, I mean, there's one of our employees, Laura, uh, tells the story. She, she, she uses a wheelchair and she described how she just went to her dental appointment and she was unable to enter the surgery because of stairs. So then mm. the staff had to lift her up the stairs and she felt very stressed throughout the whole experience because she was frightened about being dropped and embarrassed and then the fuss uh, that was being made over her while all, all the other patients in the surgery were watching. And she kept that appointment, but then she found an alternative dentist um, for the next one mm. who had disability access. Um, and this is a really important point. A lot of people will actually lose customers because of that. And the, the Centre for Inclusive Design um, did a study. Now, that was a study done in the education, retail and financial sectors. But they, they say in that study that uh, people with disability have over $40 billion in annual disposable income, a significant portion of which is untapped due to design exclusion. Wow. So, so there's real economic, financial and social benefits if you design it inclusively. Yeah, I think that's a very good example as well where you just even the ability to choose which doctor or dentist that you go to um, depends on the infrastructure that's available for you to actually access the building. It's mm -hmm. something that you or I probably wouldn't have to think twice about. Correct. But we would if we were having a baby or yes. if we'd broken a leg. Or, and coming back to the point of it would be better for everybody if you just got it right the first time when you were designing it. Yes, I think it's uh, you raised a good point that we should start thinking about accessibility in the planning process itself rather than something that's done ad hoc. And absolutely, right at the very beginning, uh, take the user's needs, wants uh, into account. And Oricon, whom we work with, um, something they say is by understanding people's lives, the way they interact and who they interact with will provide insights as to whether a design is truly fit for purpose. I was reading a report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that 
and I don't think a lot of people realise this, but there is about, I think it was like 4.4 million Australians or one in five that live with some kind of disability. Yes. Uh, and I've read that there are disability standards that are trying to be put in place to make tra- public transport more accessible. Uh, and the whole aim of that was to provide equal access to all public transport networks and the associated infrastructure, hopefully by the end of 22. Mm-hmm. How could we better account for edge users in transport and transport infrastructure to try and meet those goals? Yeah, so that's a really important point about having standards, although you can have standards, but it, they may not necessarily take into account a user's needs and wants. So the way mm-hmm. to do it is to ensure that your designers, very early in the design stage, you know, get together a, a, a whole diverse range of people, people with um, you know, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, different, you speak different languages where English is an additional language, people of different cultures, gender, age, or any human difference, and get them to, to review your designs and give you feedback about what it's like for them when they use your services. I think you raised a good point as well about not just, say, um, people with disability, but just inclusivity in general and getting as many perspectives as possible to try and build infrastructure or, or projects that take on the experiences of many different people. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and and it's, it's probably hard for a standard to, to you know, take into account all the different needs and wants. And so... Um, that's why you need to have this very diverse and inclusive approach. Yeah, totally. Well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me all about how we can potentially make our transport and our cities more inclusive places for people with disabilities and people just without disabilities as well. <laughs> thank you, Emily, for your interest. If you'd like to know more about Sue or AbilityWorks Australia, you can visit their website, which is abilityworks.com.au. Alternatively, if you'd like to know more about BiteSize or the company that produces this podcast, Compass IoT, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time.